as we say now in the modern church, if you have your phones, turn with me to the book of Genesis, the 45th chapter. Everybody get your phones out. Y'all do have the Bible app, right? My friend Jamie George, who pastors at Journey Church down at Cool Springs, was speaking. Um, I think he was doing a, a, yeah, it was at Dave Ramsey's Lampo group doing a devotional. This was back a few years ago before we were used to people using their phones in service. And a young man down front kept looking at his phone. Jamie, who normally is one of the most tender, gentle, pastoral types, for whatever reason that day, he didn't have any mercy for it, and he called the guy out and said, is there something more important on your phone? And the guy said, I was just looking at the scriptures that you were using. So uh, you get a free pass on the phone these days, but the free pass is you might be looking at scripture, you also might be looking at Facebook, so the preacher really can't tell. But I'll trust y'all are on Genesis 45 with me, because this is a... uh, This is kind of a read-through that I want to do with you. We started it last week, uh, looking at the subject of forgiveness through the lens of this fellow by the name of Joseph. I'll take three minutes while you're locating Genesis 45, and if you want the translation I'm using, I'm doing something I rarely do, and I'm using the New King James Version. Not the Old King James Version, but the New King James Version. Um, I just like the way the story reads. In this text, Joseph was 17 years old, long story short, so as not to be too redundant from last week, but redundancy is to some extent the heart of teaching, so let me try to be unboringly redundant. He was 17 years old. He was the fourth generation of what we know as the patriarchs of of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then that fourth generation, the 12 tribes of Israel were named after Joseph was the 11th of the 11th of 12 sons that was born to Jacob, his father, and Jacob's two wives and their two concubines. Joseph was the favored of the sons, by far the favored of the sons, and it caused enmity between him and the 10 older brothers. The enmity reached a fevered pitch one day when Joseph was sent by his father out to the field to take lunch or a message to his brothers. His brothers that day decided that they were going to, in their jealousy and rage, they were going to kill him. Instead of killing him, they decided to commoditize him, which is its own form of death. Um, Utilitarianism and economics took over, and they said, instead of wasting this good, young body, we're going to sell him to the Amalek. Amalekite slave traders that frequently come by here. So all of that happened after they had lowered Joseph down into a well and around the perimeter of that well made that plan. They haul him up out of the well, they sell him to the Amalekite slave traders, and in this prison wagon he is separated from his family and his life and he heads to Egypt where he is sold sold on the auction block to a governmental worker kind of high up in the system by the name of Potiphar. And after being sold to Potiphar, he labored for him a half dozen to maybe 10 years. After laboring faithfully as a slave for Potiphar, he was accused by Potiphar's wife of an indiscretion that he didn't do. Potiphar did what you would suspect Potiphar would do, And he called the authorities, he was the authority, and they took Joseph away to prison. Joseph was in prison at least two years, could have been as many as five years. 
At the end of his time in prison, which was a very difficult experience, no doubt, he was called on to interpret dreams, or rather he wasn't really called on. There were two servants of Pharaoh who had fallen into um, a bad state with Pharaoh and had been put in prison. These two uh, workers within the palace of Pharaoh, the baker and the butler, had dreams. And Joseph supernaturally, paranormally, um, interpreted those dreams. One of the dreams was uh, interpreted that, uh, I can't remember if it was the baker or the butler, would die. The other was that the man would be restored, and within a few days it happened, just as Joseph interpreted the dreams. Time rocks on. Pharaoh has some very bothersome dreams, and as the servant overhears Pharaoh talking about the fact that he wishes someone had the magical powers to interpret his dreams, it occurred to this fellow who was working for Pharaoh that he remembered the guy in prison. And he said, I know just the guy for you. Joseph is lifted out of prison. He interprets the dreams correctly. It gives him such favor with Pharaoh that he ascends immediately to the vice chancellor position of Pharaoh, the vice Pharaoh position of all of Egypt. So he ensues to lead the country through a time of, fam through a time of great harvest and then into a time of famine. The famine spreads not just throughout the Egyptian North African region, but it spreads throughout the Levant, which is that part of somewhere between Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean, between uh, the Fertile Crescent and the Mediterranean. It spreads at least to there because that's where Joseph's family lived. And they found themselves also in the middle of that famine, and they decided in order to save their lives that they would send the brothers, Joseph's ten brothers, down to Egypt, and they had heard that Egypt had a storehouse of food that had been stored up in the years of bounty, and so they went, and immediately upon standing in front of Joseph, who was given discretion over the storage or over the storehouse, Joseph immediately recognized them. So the moment's full of pathos. As Joseph remembers, he's had, at this point, he's probably 39 so this is 22 years of pain, uh, 22 years of separation from his family, 22 years of devastation, and now without their knowledge, he's standing there in their midst, and the emotion is overwhelming. He puts them in prison, and then after putting them in prison, they didn't know why, um, he sorts through his own emotions, and he tells them that he'll fill their bags with grain, send them back home, but he's going to keep one of the brothers. And he kept the third, uh, the third oldest of the boys, a fellow by the name of Simeon. He keeps him, and he tells the brothers as they're leaving, he says, the only way you're ever going to see your brother again is if you come back down here. And when you come back down here, I want you to bring the youngest brother who did not come on the first trip, the youngest brother that I've heard you speak of, and that would have been Benjamin, the brother of Joseph that Joseph had never met, born to Joseph's mother, Rachel. They go back home. They get through over the course of a year. They get through all of the grain, and the famine's still raging, and they finally look at their dad, and they say, you know the only way that we're going to survive is if we go back, and the only way we can go back and show our face there is if we take Benjamin. And jo Jacob grieves mightily, but finally relents, and he sends them. 
So after appearing before Joseph, Joseph puts them through a few ringers, and I won't go into the, all the details of the story, but it finally culminated, and we talked about it last week, it culminated in this moment at the end of chapter 44 that I think is a profound moment, especially when you're talking about the subject of forgiveness and the subject of wounding. Because what happened on that day is we realize that all of the, the machinations that Joseph had put his brothers through, uh, sending them back, leaving Simeon here, demanding that Benjamin come back, then telling them that he's going to hold Benjamin and not send him back, um, tricking them by putting in their grain the silver chalice from his dining hall and then accusing them of stealing it and thus in his jurisprudence, putting Benjamin in jail. It's a long, sad story, but all of that, as you're reading the story, you finally, Jeff, think he's finally got power over these guys who abused him and took his life away for 22 years. And he's now shooting bullets at their feet, watching them dance miserably, and he's getting a lot of gratification out of wielding power over these men that had harmed him so. But that's not the case. Because the Bible said ultimately it is revealed exactly why he put them through all of these processes. Because as he filled their bags with grain and as they stood there understanding that they were going to have to go back to their dad without this younger brother, this beloved son of their dad, and they knew it was going to kill their father. At that moment, Judah and the brothers stepped forward and chapter 44 concludes by them literally stepping forward and saying we can't do that to the old man. And as Joseph demands an explanation, they say, because he's already lost one son. It's interesting, but you would have thought Joseph would have looked at them and said, you mind telling me about that story? Could you imagine? As he would hear the story, I wonder how they would have told it. But instead of doing that, he looked at them and told them that they were going to have to go. And Judah stepped forward, which is interesting because Judah was the one brother 22 years before, standing around the perimeter of that well, who did not want to kill Joseph, and he intervened and said, let's at least sell him, and it saved his life. So now Judah's standing there, and Judah steps forward and says, we can't go home. We can't go home because this would kill our dad, and he's already gone through enough. What they didn't say but was there, you could cut the tension with a knife. It was hanging in the air. It would kill our dad because he's already gone through enough, and we put him through it. In that moment, Judah said, I want you to keep me, kill me. And all the other brothers raised their hand and said, before we hurt this old man anymore, you can take our lives. That's the moment where Genesis 45 begins. And if you look at it, verse 1, I won't spend a lot of time here because we looked at it last week. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Joseph could not restrain himself in that moment, and he cried out. The first thing he cried out, and I made mention of this last week, and it's so germane to the subject of forgiveness. When he cried out, the reason he broke, and I didn't point this out last week, but I want to point it out here. 
The reason he broke and could not restrain himself and now revealed himself to his brothers, and he knew that it was time for them to work through the hard stuff, the reason was because he saw something there that I don't think he had expected to see. He saw something that maybe for a time he didn't even want to see. He saw that his brothers were changed men. He saw brothers who 22 years before would selfishly and callously take his life away and grieve their father sore. But 22 years later, after building a monster in his mind, no doubt, many of those years about what these brothers would have, you know, fermented into in their badness, he sees the exact opposite. He sees that these are men who have changed. These are men who have grown. These are men who are not the monsters that he once knew they were, that he hoped they still were, so he could get them back. The reality is, and it was perhaps a hard pill to swallow, and perhaps it was incredibly gratifying to him, I don't know, but you do know that true forgiveness is working in your heart when you want those who have hurt you to be better. When you don't want to, I don't know about you, but um, I have made mistakes in my life, and one of the more painful things about making mistakes when you're in relationship with people over a long period of time is when people fix you at that moment in time and you are forever defined relationally with them in their mind as the worst thing you've ever done. It is a horrible pain to be stuck in the minds of people in your worst moment. It's a horrible thing when you meet someone that you perhaps haven't seen in 10 years and the last time you saw them was not a good moment and there was no resolve for it. And you know in that ensuing decade that things have changed for you and that you've grown and that everybody has grown. But they, of course, recall you and have fixed you, concretized you in that awful spot. You know forgiveness is working in your heart when you are open to the fact that not only down in Egypt in that prison cell were you as the wounded one being ministered to by God you know you're open to forgiveness when you begin to realize that it, it wasn't just me that God was taking care of as I was betrayed. He wasn't just tending my wounds. But there are wounds on the side of the betrayer. Joseph got out of the pit and got elevated, and the reality was his brothers fell into that pit in unresolved repentance. They had to live every day of their life hearing the cries of that old man. It's easy to think of your enemy or the one who hurt you as some calloused reprobate, the sister or the brother of Satan, who has no capacity for reform. But what Joseph saw that day was, my God, not only was God ministering to me and helping me and changing me and, 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 and ministering to the wounds inside of me with antibodies of grace and mercy and love, but somewhere up in Canaan, my brothers were incapable of sleeping, and they were rolling over in the night, wishing that they hadn't have done it, and God was working in their heart too. You know forgiveness is working in your heart when you want to unconcretize, when you want to unfix. Steve, when you stand before someone and you hope that they've gotten better too. Joseph 
was a forgiving person. And it took 22 years for him to get there. And I do want to say, and I mentioned it last week, when Manasseh was born, his little baby, he said, call him Manasseh, for the Lord has made me forget all the sorrow. But that was somewhere around the 19th or 20th year. How long did it take for that forgiveness to work in him? And I think it's a really profound thing, Josh, that he didn't say, I have forgotten. He said, the Lord has made me forget. It was a divine work inside of him. There are moments that sometimes the wound is so large that all you can do is roll over in the prison cell of that pain and say, this is beyond me, and you ask for a divine capacity to be increased in you. He said, for God has made me forget all the sorrow. It was a divine work. And then I pointed out last week that it's really beautiful. Um, You see forgiveness in action here because he says, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. You know that forgiveness is working in your heart when you want to add no shame to your perpetrator. You know forgiveness is working in your heart when you want to add no consternation or pain or added aggravation to this embarrassing moment. He looked around at a bunch of people who weren't there for the betrayal. They weren't responsible for the betrayal. And the Bible said he looked at everyone in that room and essentially said, anybody who doesn't have a part in this relationship, get out because it's none of your business. You know forgiveness is not working in your heart when you still love telling the story. When you nurse the story with anybody who will hear you, when you enjoy telling the story and getting sympathy from people, forgiveness is not working in your heart. When you want to add shame to the person who has hurt you, forgiveness is not working in your heart. But when you look at the group and say, everybody out, this is going to be a hard moment. This is going to be a scary moment. This is going to be a profound moment, but it has nothing to do with you. This is between me and them, them and me. Everyone out, he said, get out. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians, look at verse 2, he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Forgiveness does not mean the wound is gone. Forgiveness does not mean that there is no sorrow, that there is no pain. He wept aloud. It was profound, the pain that rose up in him. But then, perhaps my favorite part of the story, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? You know forgiveness has worked in your heart when everything you ever planned on saying to them is no longer relevant. You know forgiveness has worked in your heart when all of those nights you roll over in the prison cell of that pain and that wound. How many nights did he lay there in the midst of those cockroaches and rats and with the hunger and the thirst? How many nights did he think to himself, if I ever see them again, I know what I'm going to say. How many speeches did he rehearse? How much bitterness did he nurse? But on this fateful day, he proved that forgiveness had so resolved in his heart that he looked at them, and the wound was no longer the major issue in his life. He looked at them and said, I am Joseph. And before we get to the business between you and me, there's a bigger issue. Is my dad still alive? I've, told, I've quoted many, many times Emily Dickinson from her poem, A Great Hope Fell. I haven't told very often the story of how she came to write that. Before Dickinson became this goth, dark, depressed figure as a poet, Emily Dickinson was a young woman that was excited about life and actually was dating in her little New England town. She was dating the young congregational minister who had come to pastor there. 
They were deeply in love. She was deeply in love. Most of her poetry, most of her sonnets that are about romance and beauty and life, there are probably 20% of Dickinson's work are filled with love and light. Those poems came from that era when she was in love with that young congregational minister. But one day, he, for reasons that are beyond the scope of any of us knowing, he seemingly selfishly decided to leave New England and head with the gold rush to California. And that young man, instead of doing the right thing and expressing his desires to Emily, he was too afraid to do that, and he did the most awful thing he could do. He left New England, and he, they were engaged to be married, and he didn't even talk to her. Emily Dickinson fell into a deep depression, and she spiraled down, down, down until the bitterness and the pain consumed her. At the end of her life, when she was ill, I've read the notes from her medical doctor, he said she became so eccentric and so um, reclusive that in the last days when he would go to her house, the last few months she would not come to the office, he would have to go to her house, and he could not even be in the same room with her. He would have to sit in the living room, and they would open the doors at the end of the hall, and she would walk by, and that was the only chance that he got to have any um, ability to diagnose her, which you just walk by the open door back and forth. She became such an odd person. She wrote about that experience in her poem, that's where the story comes from. She wrote about that experience, and she called the poem, A Great Hope Fell. You should read the poem sometime. A Great Hope Fell. It was a poetic fulcrum moment for her when she shifted from love and light to this darkness. But upon reflection in A Great Hope Fell, she spoke of, cryptically, she spoke of that great betrayal that wounded her sore. And she said that it opened a wound in her and ultimately, she said, the wound grew so large in me that my whole life fell into it. That's what unforgiveness and bitterness can do. It can consume you. Think about that. The wound grew so large until my whole life fell into it. You know that you're going in the opposite direction of forgiveness. You know you're falling into bitterness when all you want to talk about is the wound. You ever been, around, you ever been that person? Have you ever been around somebody in your life when every, every time you're with them, you know what they're going to talk about? They're going to talk about that event. They're going to talk about that thing. Victim though they were, they have become an even larger victim to their unwillingness to let it go and heal. And those kinds of wounds can grow untended by the antibodies of grace and mercy. They can grow gaping and infectious. They can even get gangrenous to the point that they can lead to amputations and even the loss of life, and that's what happened to Dickinson. But you know what hasn't happened to you when you look at the people that you've been waiting for 22 years to face down, and as your heart expresses, as the heart does, because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. I'm not even sure that Joseph knew what he would say that day, and perhaps it even surprised him when he looked at them and said, I am Joseph. Is dad alive? And Kenny, he knew, maybe even surprised himself, wow, I have shifted because the wound is no longer the biggest issue in my life. I am Joseph. Look at it. Does my father still live? Um, the third thing that you know 
that indicates that forgiveness is working your heart is found here. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, listen, and Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. You know forgiveness is working in your heart when you no longer want the person who hurt you to be dismayed in your presence. Think about that a while. Joseph looked at them, and when he recognized that they were dismayed in his presence, Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. I'll come back to that point of not wanting them to be dismayed because it's so interesting that Joseph, then Joseph said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. And lest we preach codependence, enabling, and unhealth, recognize there that when Joseph finally gets them near him, he does not deny the wound. We're not asking people to look at wounds and great harm that has been done them and say, oh, it doesn't matter. No, it does matter, and it did happen, and it does need to be sorted through. It is not the primary issue, but it is at least an important secondary issue. And so when he brings them near, he doesn't look at them immediately and say, forget about what happened. He looked at them and said, you remember it well. I remember it well. I am Joseph. You sold me into Egypt. Forgiveness does not demand denial. As a matter of fact, 1 John said, if we confess our sins, the word confess there is the Greek word homologeo, which means to say the same thing about. If we confess and acknowledge our sins, if we look at them and say the same thing that God says about them, then God is just and faithful to forgive us. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go to him. Tell him the wrong. It doesn't say go to him and say forget about it. No, no. It needs to be recognized. Go to him. Tell him the wrong. If he repents, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, Take two or three with you. Then you bring people into the equation. Not two or three dozen, not two or three hundred, two or three that you trust to be objective and helpful. If you repent, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, take it to the church. If he repents, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, then treat him as a tax collector or a sinner. That's not treat him as a tax collector or a sinner. Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus wasn't saying shun him, treat him awfully. Jesus was saying, if he does not acknowledge the wrong that has been done, acknowledge with him that the relationship changes. He said, if he acknowledges it, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, you have gained a tax collector or a sinner. That doesn't mean you become an awful person and hurt him back. It just means the nature of the relationship changes. Jesus was a friend to these people. But Jesus is not, Scripture is not teaching as we've often made it teach, codependency and telling people, forget about the wounds that have happened to you. Joseph said, I want to know if dad is still alive. And then Joseph said, I'm Joseph. And you hurt me really, really badly. But come near to me. I am Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Look at verse 5. This compounds this issue of their dismayed sense in his presence. Verse 5. After saying, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt... Joseph said, but now, 
Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Once Joseph recognized in their treatment of Benjamin that these were changed men, Joseph did not want them to be dismayed in his presence. And so as to reinforce that, as he brought them near, he looked in their eyes and said, literally, and you know that forgiveness is working in your heart when you're able to say this to the one who has hurt you. Listen, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves. Forgiveness has worked in your heart when you look at them and say, I want you to let yourself up. I, I do know that sense. I do know that sense of telling someone that I have forgiven them or being told that I've been forgiven. Let's stick with if I've forgiven someone. I know the sense of telling them that I've forgiven them, but really I haven't forgiven them because I still like them to be a little bit uneasy when they're around me. I want them to know that I know that they know that I know that there's always going to be this leverage point between us. And I'm always going to have the moral high ground on them. Now, I wouldn't say that verbally, but if you want them dismayed in your presence, if you get any sense of gratification out of them being uneasy around you, forgiveness has not worked in your heart. I remember, and I've told the story before, but in my family, there was a devastating series of affairs between uh, a couple in my family. And I remember, I remember... <laughs> I remember listening. I grew up in the wake of those affairs. Those affairs happened, I suppose, back in the 60s, and then I was born in 68. So by the time I knew this elderly couple, they were past those years. Their relationship was always a strange relationship to me, and they were a central part of my life, and I was with them all the time. But these two people were incredibly loving to everybody else, the man was the one who had committed the affairs. And while they were loving to everyone else, the woman in this relationship was loving to everyone except him. And I, I didn't know why. I just always knew it was strange, Sandy, that this was the sweetest little old woman. But when he would walk in the room and say, can I get you a glass of tea? I mean, she was the sweetest. Everybody, she would say, no, I don't want tea. And we would always jump like, what's wrong with her? And Jocelyn, it was always that way. She was never. He carried her around, called her angel, carried her around on a pillow. It was the oddest, saddest thing to watch her angst. And I never knew why. But then it made sense to me. My granddad was actually there when the confrontation happened way back in the 60s when the affairs were revealed. My granddad said he remembered walking into the room and the two of them were standing, Kathy, this man and woman were standing and the woman was holding a hammer with tears coming down her face. And my granddad said he walked over, Steve, to where she was and the two of them were just standing in that pain of betrayal and he said he walked over to her and said, you don't want to do this and he slipped the hammer out of her hand. She did the dutiful thing back in those days. She forgave, and she forgave. But in retrospect, what actually happened was she did not forgive the debt. Jennifer, he, he owed a debt to her that he could not repay. She would never have it repaid. 
What she actually did that day was she looked at a $3 trillion debt and she said, you don't have to pay this now, but I'm going to amortize this at a high interest rate and take it daily out of your hide the rest of our lives. See, amortizing a debt is not forgiving it. Forgiving the debt is to say, in the forgiveness, we are going to act as though the debt never existed. Maybe that's why in Jewish wisdom that Jesus interpreted Moses and said, you know, within the Levitical law, if there's going to be a divorce, Jesus said, I think Moses was saying it would just be for sexual immorality. Because that one, that one could be too big for some people to get over. And even in that harsh, restrictive day, Moses and Jesus said, that one you don't have to come back from. Now, I don't want to get into the arguments about, you know, what are the grounds for divorce and all that. That's not the point of this. But watching Jesus even equivocate in the mouth of Moses and say, this one may be too big, I, I do think that if she wasn't going to forgive, I think the amortization of that debt on a daily basis at a high interest was, I think it did her more harm than the actual initial wound. I think her decision to make herself a victim, I only grew up with her as a victim to him. She lived another 40 years after that moment, always the victim. You know forgiveness has worked in your heart when you look at the one who has wounded you and you let go of the hammer and you let go of the payment plan and you genuinely can say to them, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourself. I want you to let yourself off of the hook because Joseph realized that he had gotten up out of that pit by God's grace and now his quivering, shaking brothers made it clear to him, Bob, that they had crawled down into that pit and they had been living in misery True forgiveness looks at the one who's wounded you and says, I want you to let yourself up and I want you to let yourself off the hook. You and I are good and I want you to be okay. One more, one more, and then we'll do the, uh, another three or four next week. But watch this. This, is, this may be the meat, the heart of why he was able to do this this day. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God, you sold me here, and it hurt. But God has sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Mm. This, we have, we've gone a long way around the bushes trying to figure out, Jeff, what was just theologically said there. Arminians on one side, Calvinists on the other side. But I want you to listen to what he just said to them because that kind of could have been a little bit thick in New King James language. He looked at them and said, I don't want you to be angry with yourself. You did sell me here. 
and I know you've changed. I know, I'll tell you how you know you've changed. There are some things that you can never undo. I remember a few Timothy's gift tours ago, a man came up to me and he said, how do you ever get true forgiveness when you've taken someone's life? This man had taken someone's life 30 years, 40 years before. How do you, how do you resolve that? And I knew instantly what he was saying was that he didn't feel there could be forgiveness unless there was complete restitution. And you could not. He said, I cannot bring this person back whose life I took. How do you get forgiveness when you can't do that? And I remember the words dropped into my heart, and it made sense to me at the time, and it still does, and it seemed to give him some relief. I said, there are many things that all of us have done, not just the murder of another person, but there are things that we've done, and the genie can't get back in the bottle, and Humpty Dumpty cannot be put back, and there are some things that can never be resolved with the other person. You can never replace what you took from them. There are debts that can't be paid. There are things stolen that can't be restored. But you know that you have found a place of true repentance when you would give everything in your life to have a chance to go back and do it differently. Anybody have any of that in your life? You absolutely know. I can't and I'll never be given the chance. It's ludicrous to even think about. The, the person is dead. The thing is done. It can't be undone. But you know you have truly changed your mind when you look at that situation and say, if I had it to do over again and I wish that I could, I know I would do it differently. And Joseph looked in the eyes of men who had this unique opportunity to do it differently and when they stood there beside that younger brother that was obviously another favored younger brother, no telling how many coats of many color this kid got because Joseph was gone. And somewhere in the loss, it created this cavern inside of the man that when he got another child from Rachel, boy, this kid really got it. And here they had opportunity to hate him, and now they can really stick it to Benjamin. And Joseph says, I'm going to let you all go. You're free. Everything's going to be fine, but this kid's going to get it. And they step forward and said, thank God, we finally get an opportunity to prove to ourselves that we're different human beings. No, sir, take our life before you hurt this boy. Joseph said, these are people who had the rare opportunity to get a do-over. And Joseph looked at them and said, I want you to come here. You may have sold me. But today I realize that God used your betrayal of me. Now follow the logic. And you don't have to be legalistic about this, but I do think it points and it tastes of something that works in this universe. Van, you and I talk about this all the time. He said, you sold me here, but in some mad providence, God superintended that betrayal and used your betrayal to send me here so that I could set up all of this harvest and bounty to then preserve a posterity, not for me, the wounded one, but for you, the perpetrators. Joseph looked at them and said, I realize that God is so economic and utilitarian, he used even your sin and betrayal to preserve your life in the end. 
And in the Judeo-Christian story, there's another story. The second Joseph is a man by the name of Jesus. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter looked at a group of people and said, you crucified this man and you were wrong. And the people said, oh my God, under conviction, they said, oh my God, we've done the wrong thing. What shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized in his name for the remission of sins. And in that atonement theory setting, it was a brilliant proposition that Peter proposed. Peter looked at them, Sandy, and said, the blood that you cruelly shed is the very blood that's going to cleanse you now. And forgiveness is the fragrance, someone said, that the flower sheds on the heel that crushes it. And Joseph looked at them and said, when I finally realized, when I stood here today and looked at you, I realized that the whole thing has been superintended by God's grace to get me here to preserve a posterity for you. And if God loves you enough to still be working on your behalf, who am I? Now, again, I don't do the old legalistic thing of trying to prove that providence, I'm I'm not trying to argue, and I don't think that God makes people do bad things. I really don't. I just don't. I don't think God makes people do bad things. I don't think this story is actually giving a clear picture of a God who's sitting up in the heavens saying, I'm going to make them do this and them do this, and it's going to work out this way, and then I'm going to do this. I, I just don't think that. It's like my friend Jim McGuigan, whose three-year-old granddaughter died of leukemia. He said, if one more person tells me that God took her life to teach us some valuable lesson, he said, I'm going to throw him through a window because what I want to know is what lesson was God teaching that three-year-old. That three-year-olds are so dispensable that he can put them through pain and misery and IVs and chemo to teach us some valuable lesson. No, God didn't do it. But God comes into the worst of the worst and says in situations like this, in the midst of betrayal, God comes in and says, if hearts will simply be open. God said, let's see now what we can do with these things. I didn't cause them, but if you let my hand touch them, somehow in some mad grace, all things can work together for good. Somehow... Somehow you can take the bitterness of life and the sweetness of life and mix it together, the good and the bad, and good can still come out of it. And Joseph looked at them and said, guys, I in- it was hard. I ended up on the second seat in Egypt. I'm doing okay. Got kids? Who knows? Maybe the second half of life we'll enjoy one another more than we would have if something like this didn't happen. You know you've forgiven Josh, when you even look into the midst of the pain and you believe in spite of it all, I believe God can lay God's hand on it and good can come out of it. Even between the perpetrator and the victim. So Joseph says, let yourself up. God's used all of this. Who am I? Who am I to hold you hostage any longer to that pain? Beautiful. This is why I love the Bible so much. That's a 3,000-year-old story, and I tell it, and I still like get goosebumps because it's the story of every person in this room. We've all lived it, haven't we? It's beautiful stuff. All right, let's pray. Let's just still our hearts for a minute and ask ourselves the question, so what, to this 3,000-year-old story? So what?
May our hearts be open to forgiveness. May our hearts be open to the beauty of what can be, not the pain of what was. May we give up the hope of having a different past. May we let go and may we say this is the raw material God gets to work with, and it's good, and it's bad, and sometimes I don't know the difference. Forgiveness is not a denial of the suffering. It's not a denial of the event. It's not winking at bad things, but forgiveness is just believing somehow, sweet Christ, that all things can work together for good. Thank you for taking even the tough stuff in our life and using it to preserve a posterity for us. And may we even this afternoon be committed to killing the victim inside of us before the victim inside of us kills us. May we let go before we turn into a sad Emily Dickinson and our whole life falls in a wound. May we let go and trust in the goodness of God, the love that's at the heart of this universe to redeem all things. We pray all of this, trusting our hearts to you. May they be forever open in hope and trust the goodness that's afoot here. Pray this in Christ's name. God's people said amen.